Welcome to the Public Health Networker, the official podcast of the Public Health Podcast Network. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. In this podcast, we speak to professionals about public health in community, global, and environmental health settings. We talk about mentorship. We talk about how to develop public health professionals and podcasters. And we address some of the major crucial issues of our day as it affects environmental community and global health. And so join us along this journey as we speak about creative solutions and partnerships so that we can proactively make a change for public health. Hello, Public Health Podcast Network community. I'm pleased to let you know that our Episodes are now scheduled for Wednesdays every week. And every Wednesday, we will be speaking about various topics and interviewing people in the field of public health. We'll be talking about career, we'll be talking about focus, and what the different options are in the field of public health, what that variety of potential is for you to become a public health professional or to strategize and to grow your career, whether it be in the public health sector, in academia, in community work, or even entrepreneurship. The different fields and the different options are pretty much endless. So I hope you enjoy our Wednesday episodes now for the Public Health Networker podcast. We will be actually releasing three episodes per week now. But the Monday and Wednesday episodes are going to be created especially for our membership community. So those are going to be topics on motivation, self-care, how to create self-care and a space for quality of life in the field of public health, how to create your ideal career and build ideas to envision an ideal space for health equity and for a better way to do public health. So I hope you enjoy these Wednesday episodes of the Public Health Networker podcast. And if you're interested in learning more about our membership community, the new podcast episodes on on Mondays and Fridays are just one of the many features of the many benefits of membership. So to learn more about our membership opportunity, visit us on Public Health podcasters.com slash membership at our site. Thank you. We are pleased to present our partner, the HPP Podcast. The HPP Podcast offers context and new perspectives drawn from articles published in the Health Promotion Practice Journal. The podcast and journal are dedicated to the art and science of health promotion with the broader goals of health equity and social justice. Welcome to episode five of the Public Health Networker podcast. I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. This is a bonus episode for this current week of November 
I don't know, the week before Thanksgiving. And it is about AMIA, the American Medical Informatics Association. This week is all about public health informatics. So in episode four, we interviewed Dr. Carmen Williams, a professor at City University, New York, to talk about population and public health informatics. And in this episode, we go straight into AMIA, the American Medical Informatics Association's annual symposium, which took place in San Diego in 2021. And we had the opportunity to interview a couple of the more um, very visible folks at the conference. And so it was wonderful to get some information from them on the history of informatics, where it's going now, about AMIA, the annual conference over the years and decades, and even what the future of public health informatics is expected to look like. So I hope you enjoy this episode where we speak to Dr. William Hirsch, Bill Hirsch, of the Oregon Health and Science University Department of Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology. And we also speak to Dr. Brian Dixon of the Riggenstreif Institute, who focuses on public health informatics and COVID response. So I hope you enjoy these two very interesting interviews about the history, uh, the past, the present, and the future of public health and informatics. So today we have Bill Hirsch here, interview at AMIA, and he mentioned that he is, uh, he has a long history here at the conference. So today I wanted to interview him and to hear a little bit more about what he's seen over the decades uh, with um, with AMIA, the different trends in informatics that we've seen over the years, and um, you know what you predict is ahead, uh, what you've seen in terms of trends. Sure. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. Could you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, my name is Bill Hirsch, Dr. Bill Hirsch. I'm a professor and chair of the Department of Medical Informatics and Clinical Epidemiology in the School of Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, um, where I basically um, um, oversee our academic department, um, our uh, graduate program, and um, um, I work as an academic in biomedical and health informatics. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about the research you've currently been working on? Sure. Um, <clears throat> my research historically has focused on the area of information retrieval, or sometimes called search. Um, in the early days, it focused a lot on retrieval of things like literature, knowledge resources, and so forth. And then um, about a decade ago, as clinical data became more plentiful, started applying um, some of those techniques to problems related to um, uh, finding, searching in clinical records. And, and the use case that um, we've mostly focused on is uh, cohort identification, identifying patients who might be candidates for clinical studies, because we all know that um, 
um, recruiting patients is hard, especially if the criteria for studies is complicated. Um, a lot of clinical studies fail because they can't recruit adequate patients. So can we develop methods that use the data and the electronic health record to um, more easily identify patients uh, as potential candidates for clinical studies? And so could you tell us a little bit about AMIA? Tell us about you know, what happened when you first started coming to AMIA, what it was like, and then sure. over the years what it has evolved into. Sure. So um, um, like many people in informatics, I originally trained in medicine. Um, so I, I got my MD degree in 1984. I did a residency in internal medicine um, um, at University of Illinois Hospital, which is also University of Illinois, where I did my medical training. And um, I always, um, even in those days of computers that are primitive by today's standards, always enjoyed dabbling around with computers, actually back to high school. Um, and um, as I was finishing my medical training, it was kind of the early days of the PC and Mac era. And so I, in my free time, I would dabble around with them. And I thought, well, maybe I could make a career of this. And, and I don't know exactly who it was, but someone said to me, you should look into this field called informatics. Um, and this was before Google, so I just couldn't go type informatics. So um, I wrote, I found out who some of the people leading the programs at various universities were. So I either wrote them letters or called them on the phone and um, actually learned that um, one could indeed do a fellowship funded by the National Library of Medicine in, um, in medical informatics, as we tended to call it back then. Um, and so the first, well, actually, when I went to my first of this fall meeting, and, and this is my 36th consecutive one, but when I went to my first one in 1986, this conference was called SCAMC, Symposium on Computer Applications in Medical Care. And, um, um, and then in 1990 or thereabouts, um, SCAMC merged with um, a couple other organizations to become AMIA. So then this conference became the AMIA uh, Annual Symposium. Um, <clears throat> but again, I went first in 1986 and, and have gone every year. Um, obviously, last year was virtual. I was delighted this year when we were going to be back in person. And uh, I'm happy to see uh, my friends. Um, you know, AMIA is really important to me. It's my, um, it's my professional association. Many of my best friends in the world are, uh, go to AMIA meetings. They work in the informatics field. And, um, but, you know, clearly informatics itself has changed. In the 1980s, there were a few um, really research-oriented informatics programs that had developed fairly uh, primitive by today's standards, electronic health records. Um, certainly most um, uh, clinicians and hospitals at that point were still using paper medical records, as I did in the small amount of internal medicine practice that, that I was doing at that time. Um, after I finished my residency. Um, and um, uh, the technology um, improved. Actually, in the early days, when I entered the field, was the first era of AI, the kind of people building knowledge bases and rule-based expert systems. And those systems just were not scalable. And so AI, not, not only in medicine, but really everywhere, it just kind of died out. The AI winter uh, at the end of the 1980s. And so... Um, um, I, you know, and uh, because I was seeing that failure of those systems, I um, 
found out, learned about this field called information retrieval that was focused on searching. And of course, there were search systems back then. You could um, uh, search Medline through the National Library of Medicine. The system that did it at that point was called LHIL. It had a command line interface, and it was completely unforgiving. Um, but you know, I, I started looking at ways that maybe we could index the information better and so forth, and that led me into the field of information retrieval. Um, through the, you know, then in the 90s came the World Wide Web, so the beginning of some of the web-based applications. Um, also in the 90s and into the 2000s was the, uh, some of the research um, suggesting that clinical decision support and electronic health records could help patients. Um, and it, it kind of came to a head in the late 2000s, whatever you call that decade, um, when um, um, there was the, the HITECH Act, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. At that point, there was a belief, and perhaps in retrospect, it, we oversimplified it, that you know, electronic health records could come in and make medicine more efficient and safe and so forth. Um, you know, so then um, incentives for electronic health records got um, uh, added into the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act and you know, certainly led to uh, rapid well, re relatively rapid uptake of electronic health records. So, and, and that really changed things. Um, you know, companies like Epic and Cerner, which were already growing big, but you know, grew huge overnight. And um, and you know, obviously now in retrospect, it was probably a little more complicated than we thought in terms of rolling out electronic health records. But you know, healthcare has, for the most part entered the digital age. We, healthcare was a late comer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all of those things. Um, so the growth of commercial EHR systems, um, you know, changed um, AMIA because in, in the earlier days, all of the EHR systems were homegrown and people, um, um, you know, were, and, and, you know, they were really mostly um, research kind of systems. They, they, but now, you know, of course, you need something like an Epic or a Cerner to do all the information plumbing in your hospital, the billing, and stuff like that. It's less um, intellectually interesting to those of us in, in, who are clinicians and in academia, but to hospitals that have to pay the bills and keep the revenues flowing, that, that information plumbing is really important. Uh, unfortunately, that information plumbing say, sometimes takes precedence over the clinical aspects of the system, and I think that that's gotten us into some trouble. Um, so, you know, the field has grown. Um, the commercial marketplace is more mature now, um, but there's still plenty of research to do. There's certainly plenty of opportunities uh, for education because um, we need people who are trained in informatics to do the right things with these um, uh, EHR systems. And, you know, so that's where things stand now. Amy has gotten a lot bigger. Maybe the conference itself is a little smaller this year because of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of research going on. Um, there's rigorous um, academic journals that publish papers. And, and then, of course, we, um, in the last, you know, half decade or so, has been the growth of uh, machine learning and deep learning and so kind of ushering in the second era of AI um, and um, you know we heard some of the examples of it in the keynote yesterday um, from Dr. Topol who's one of my favorite uh, people I follow him on Twitter he's it's, he's very informative unlike a lot of other people on Twitter <laughs> um, and um, um, you know, so now, now there's a lot of opportunity although I, I think we're still in the early days of machine learning in the sense that um, 
Um, it's not really in widespread operational use. I think we still have a ways to go to figure out. So, yeah, you know, we can, um, a, a machine learning algorithm can read an x-ray as accurate as a radiologist, but how do we implement that in clinical practice? How do we know it works? How do we um, um, transfer that system to another clinical setting that may have different characteristics right. of data and so forth. So, you know, I think those are big opportunities now for informatics. So, so I, I, I um, you know, I've always been uh, bullish on informatics and I, I am now too and I think there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, do you have any recommendations uh, or see any trends in particular with public health and informatics? Yeah, um, well, um, obviously, as we all know, our, you know, public health um, system in the United States and our public health information systems were not really well prepared for the pandemic. Um, and I think there's a recognition now that that's very important. Um, so, you know, hopefully as we come out of the pandemic, there will be um, um, resources, funding, you know, to, and, and there already are starting to be some of it, to shore up public health information systems. Um, also, in the United States, more so than other countries, we, our public health system and healthcare system are, are separate. Um, seeing more integration, you know, like in a lot of other countries, there, there's a strong integration between public health and healthcare, and we need to do more of that in the U.S. so we can, um, um, you know, get the synergy of, of healthcare data flowing into the public health system and actually data from the public health system informing the, um, the healthcare system. So, you know, I, I think there will be a lot of opportunities for people in public health informatics who, who you know, bring that informatics knowledge and skills to uh, public health problems. Okay, thank you. I hope to see more professional professor opportunities in the future. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for the information. Thank you for bringing us through the history yeah, of informatics yeah. over the decades. Uh, Appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank sure. Happy to do so. Yeah. Great. Yeah. All right. So today we are pleased to be speaking to Brian Dixon. He's part of the Regan Street Institute. I am the uh, director of public health informatics at the Regan Street Institute. I have a dual role. Um, part of my role at the uh, university is uh, teaching public health students. So I, I'm in the Department of Epidemiology, so I teach our um, graduate students mostly and some undergraduate students about informatics. And then uh, on, at Regan Street, I kind of lead our research portfolio that focuses on public health informatics. Excellent. So I think in particular, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more on what you're doing at Regan Street and with public health informatics. What do you think are your current projects that you're working on and then the, what you think are the, the trends for the future? Yeah, so a lot of our work this uh, last uh, 18 months to two years has really been focused around COVID. So um, we've been really trying, we, we try to support the practice of public health with our uh, research as well. So we've done a lot of work with both local health departments and state health departments to build infrastructure in the state of Indiana to support data collection and data analysis for COVID-19. One of the projects we're working on right now uh, is very focused on uh, it very focused on vaccine effectiveness. So with the CDC and other, some, uh, several other states, we're using data from the electronic health record 
to uh, link to vaccination records at the state immunization registry so that we can look at who's been immunized and then look at their long-term outcomes in terms of uh, hospitalizations and death uh, in order to show um, and, uh, both effectiveness of vaccines as well as we're looking at kind of immunity waning over time. We're looking at subpopulations like those who are immunocompromised, those who are pregnant, uh, different various uh, populations of interest so we can monitor them at a, at a population level. Uh, so that's kind of the, been a lot of the current work. Uh, other work, it, 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 that work really builds on our portfolio of, of really linking uh, data across different systems. So linking, for example, the STI with the HIV divisions within the health department uh, and the data there, linking together, uh, for example, uh, data sets from uh, traumatic brain injury, so injury prevention programs with data from hospitals to follow patients longitudinally over time. And I think as we, uh, you know, looking forward, what we're, what we're engaging in is really thinking about what are those uh, systems and processes that we really need to rebuild the nation's public health infrastructure following COVID. What's going to be uh, efficient, what's going to enable uh, public health 3.0 in the future. Well, I mean, I think COVID is going to become endemic, but we're going to see it seasonally and we're going to have, I think, uh, what's likely is vaccines that we get boosters every couple of years maybe, or perhaps annually like the flu shot. Uh, but it's certainly, we don't, I don't think we're looking at a world where we eliminate COVID, I think we're looking at a world where we uh, sort of live with it just like we do other coronaviruses and influenza. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I mean I have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, but uh, tell us a bit more on, watching. Well, I'll go ahead and ask this one. What is it that makes Indiana so advanced? Okay, so we, we, we know about you guys. Right? <laughs> we know that Indiana, we know Regan Street, you guys are far ahead yeah. of the rest of the country as it comes to HIE, as it comes to informatics, in, uh, infrastructure investments in health IT. Uh, what is it in the culture? Uh, what makes you all so great when it comes to health informatics and public health? Uh, I, think the, I think really the number one reason that sets us apart is the culture of collaboration that we have in the state. We have hospital systems that have been willing to share their data with one another for a long time. And really that's what you need as a foundation for an informatics infrastructure. If you're going to have any kind of hope of doing information exchange, you have to have trust um, that, that the, and, and build that and cultivate that over a long period of time. We've been doing that for 30 years. So okay. I think that, that really, uh, is really what distinguishes us. And the second thing then is uh, strong governance around the data. So we have very strong uh, regulations, if you will, that are not from, a, from a, a governmental authority, but they're from the health information exchange itself around who can use the data and when they can be used and for what purposes. And that allows the, the that, that helps solidify the trust that was there in the community in the first place. And it also gives assurances that uh, data are used for purposes. Some of those purposes are for population health and public health, but some of those purposes are, uh, you know, for patient care and for management of health systems and operations. And so it really runs the gamut. But 
I think that that's really, you know, the foundation of a robust infrastructure is both trust and strong governance. Uh, because sometimes the IT systems themselves are the, are the easy part. Um, I think the other thing that really helps us too is our real focus from the beginning on standards and normalization of data. Because in order for you to be able to do things, to query the data that you need for population health, you need to be able to look at all the A1C values right across all the different uh, uh, measurements of A1C for diabetic populations, or you need to be able to reconcile all of the various like SARS-CoV-2 tests that are performed in a community. And so uh, our health information exchange serves that role uh, for both the healthcare system and public health. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And then so what do you think are, you mentioned the health 3.0, what do you think are the trends for the future? Let's say, you know, it becomes endemic, COVID, and now we're on to the next challenge. What do you think that we need to be preparing for? Um, I think we need to be preparing for, uh, at least in public health, for, the, you know, with, with the investment that's being made right now, the creation of systems that break down traditional silos in public health. So there's not a specific, you know, there may be a, a, a specific user interface for, uh, let's say, the HIV program and a different sort of interface for the STI program, but those the data across the different divisions within public health need to be able to, to link together at some point. So we're looking at the implementation of sort of master person indexes within public health. We're looking at a, a, a system where the uh, Medicaid program in the state links to the state health department's records so that we can look at vulnerable populations and provide support. That there's linkages between data that, that CBOs have, community-based organizations, who are working with specific populations that public health collaborates with them, you know, on all levels except data integration today. So the future systems are data integration with those partners so that we can both provide value to those organizations and they can provide feedback back to us and value back to public health so that together we can better support uh, those subpopulations in our communities. Yeah, so I think, um, think COVID-19 really put it in everyone's face that this is a huge issue. And these issues that emerged during COVID-19 were not just caused by SARS-CoV-2, they were caused by systemic, structural racism and equity issues that have been around for decades. And so they became much more acute during the pandemic. And so one of the things that we did with the, with the pandemic is to create tools for local health departments to look by school district or zip code or census tract at their populations about where cases were, where the vaccinated were, uh, so that they could adjust where they set up the next vaccination site or the next testing site. We worked with them uh, to identify the subpopulations at higher risk so that they could proactively work with CBOs to address these issues in the community. Um, and I think that that really is, is you know, a major focus now in informatics. So I think more people are aware of it and so I think going forward, there's going to be a much uh, tighter lens on it um, within public health agencies who've been doing this work with CBO partners for years. Um, but now we have some tools, we have some 
uh, guidelines. There's a new report from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation out that's about uh, specifically about the challenges in collecting race and ethnicity data and the use of those data by public health departments to address these issues in our community. And I think that it takes sometimes these big reports from these major national organizations to drive uh, grant funding from CDC, to drive policy making, to drive action in our communities. So I think going forward, we're going to see action based on these recommendations that are in the national report. I think the local level, there's already uh, activity to move in that direction. I think local health departments would really like to see it, but they're gonna need support from state health agencies and the CDC uh, and other parts of the federal government to, to make it a reality. Yeah, so there's a huge, uh, there's huge work ahead for collaborations in public health. And um, what recommendations would you have for a region? I won't say specifically uh, where there are any challenges geographically, but what recommendations do you have for uh, regional public health agencies to become more? adapt to more become more adaptive adaptable and agile and and uh, up to date uh, with health informatics yeah so i think the biggest thing that the agencies are going to face is a workforce uh issue and they already realize that, that that they don't have informatics for example uh within the agency they don't have informatics specialists they don't have uh, their larger workforce is not aware of what informatics is or, or how it could contribute to the mission of the organization. So I think there's going to need to be a lot of education and training of the public health workforce so that they can, uh, the, the users themselves can use the systems appropriately, but also that there's more informatics specialists, particularly at the local level. Some state agencies have informatics divisions. Many local health departments do not. That needs to change going forward because you have to have somebody in the public health role that is helping to coordinate the collection of the data, the normalization of the data, the management of the data, and uh, it can't just fall on, you know, we can't rely on an IT person to do that. Or uh, well, or an epidemiologist, because epidemiologists historically have not been trained to do informatics. They've been trained to do epi methods, um, and those are important. Ideally, you would have, uh, you would add curriculum to schools of public health that would focus on informatics uh, for all public health trainees, but also offering informatics concentration so that those individuals then could understand health policy, epidemiology, social behavioral science, and informatics when they land in the health department to help guide the development of these systems and working with partners uh, to manage that collection of data and the use of the data. Because really, a lot of times people in public health, they don't have time to analyze the data that they collect. And so you need people who can support the analysis of the data and then putting that data into action at the community level. Thank you. Uh, I love this connection from data all the way into policy and action that you mentioned today in this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Brian. Well, thanks for inviting me to be part of the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Public Health Networker. For more information about the Public Health Podcast Network, visit us at publichealthpodcasters.com. You could also find us on Twitter at phpodcasters or on Instagram at publichealthpodcasters. Thank you. Welcome to this Friday episode of the Public Health Networker podcast. This is our Friday bonus episode, our self-care Friday theme. And I'm your host, Dr. April Moreno. Today we're talking about integrative wellness. And this is our first self-care Friday episode. And I think that talking about those foundations of what integrative wellness are, are key and useful and impactful. And, you know, the vision of this uh, Friday self-care series is to help our public health professionals and our net, um, our workforce network with self-care principles during these stressful moments in our history of, or actually the future of our humanity, to be honest, being quite serious about the fact that in the next 50 to 100 years, humanity and our social determinants may look very different. And so doing our part now to maintain our self-care because we are, you are crucially needed. So today I wanted to talk about these uh, dimensions of wellness and they can vary between three to four to seven and even I've seen 10, 12 and more. And it really just depends on the way you classify them. But today I just want to break them down into four dimensions of wellness. So in my uh, feet, my past projects um, with Dr. April Wellness, I was very much focused on integrative wellness because of my autoimmune diagnosis. During the time I was doing my PhD in public health, in my third year, I was diagnosed after a very intensely stressful, and actually, to be quite honest, racist year working in a public health agency. So I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and from there, I really took on the... Um, the learnings of integrative wellness because clinical work is wonderful. Clinical accomplishments and breakthroughs are great, but there's still huge gaps in the way that diversity plays into participation in clinical trials. And then also the fact that there's a lot of indigenous and ancestral wisdom that is still, it still works and it, it will always work. And these are integrative procedures and processes that we all ought to keep in mind. So today we're talking first about these four dimensions of wellness, mind, body, spirit, and environment. So the first one is about mind, and this is very foundational as it exists for humanity and, and living here on earth as human beings. And so the power of the mind and cultivating mental resilience and mental strength is very important, especially as we work in the field of public health and are quite needed in this world and in this earth to provide, you know, health services, health advocacy, health education, and professional networking support. So the power of the mind is going to be crucial on that journey. So uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about is the mental health journey and not only just mental health in terms of the clinical model of like just being able to thrive as a human being and just function like a normal person, but also 
the uh, taking it further into the processes of concepts of flow, concepts of of resilience and self care, transformational uh, living, and also being able to design your ideal life. So thriving is also an important part of that mental journey. So for this part here of the four, I just wanted you to really take some time and focus in on learning more about what it is you envisioned for your ideal life and working backwards from there in the future. So thinking in the next coming several decades, where do you see yourself, right? At age 50, age 75, age 80 and up, maybe age 100, if that is your goal. What are the circumstances that you'll be in? And what are the stories and experiences you'll be able to share with people? So designing and optimizing your own life is crucial. And also envisioning in a professional sense what you envision your role to be on this earth. What is it that you see yourself being able to do? And what are you most excited about doing? What do you feel called to do in the field of public health, health justice, social justice, environmental justice, and community service, and community health education, advocacy, maybe community-engaged services, CBPR, community-engaged research even more. So that is the mental component. The second component is the physical component. And I do start out with the mental as a foundation because uh, as human beings, a lot of that being component does involve us um, contemplating who we are, that mindfulness piece meditation, contemplation. So now we're looking at physical health and it's very much connected to mental health, but it is the more outright physical manifestation, the tangible manifestation of our thoughts and actions and beliefs in many cases, even our genetics and our circumstances. So physical health, you know, when is the last time you had your health exam? Some people are very good at uh, communicating that need to other people. You know, some MDs are really good at communicating health and uh, health education specialists are very good at communicating specific health conditions for uh, disease promotion. I mean, health promotion and disease control, disease prevention. However, what have you been able to do for yourself lately? Have you been able to make that dental appointment? Have you made your vision care appointment? Have you gone in for a physical exam and done the necessary screenings? So that is the other important piece, right? The physical health component of making sure that you are physically, um, you know, in good shape, you know, getting the rest that you need, getting the sleep that you need, eating nutritious foods and getting the exercise that you need as well. The third one is about the spirit. And so spirit um, is definitely having to do with our connection to the greater spirit, um, universal spirit, universal good, universal kindness, and having that sense of connection to our foreverness, right? So beyond life, um, what is it that you believe is to be, right? How do you play a role in that uh, connection to the universe? whether it be through religion or through other um, other beliefs. What is it that you believe and how have you been connecting to that recently? So contemplating that 
making time to give thanks to your creator, who you believe in, uh, making time for connection, um, speaking to one another in, in conversation, and also that other portion of social connectedness as it relates to the um, shared belief system is very powerful and very grounding and very healing as well. So I highly recommend you know, taking some time to think about how you have been able to, especially over the holiday seasons, um, been able to connect to your higher power, to the higher universal power of your personal belief system. The fourth one is about environment. And this one's also very crucial because as you know, in public health, everything is related to our environment, our uh, fixed infrastructure, um, everything that's around us from the air, water quality, to the access to healthy facilities, services, parks, um, healthy supermarkets, and so on, safe traffic um, streets, safe streets, and all of these things. And so just being able to do that assessment on your own, in your own environment, how has that um, been for you? And what can be improved? Perhaps what can you advocate for in your own community? And I think that that's very central to a lot of our, our work in public health. How does it relate to us individually? How do you relate to the communities you serve? How are you part of those communities that you serve? And also, how can you improve your own um, social determinants? How can you uh, be in more mindful connection to your environment, making it better, designing your ideal environment, or finding an environment that is more suitable to your life goals and your ideal vision for yourself? So this is the pretty much the episode today on self-care. Um, a lot of it is on life design, designing your ideal circumstances, mind, body, spirit, spirit and environment. So I wanted to provide this today to you as a holiday message and just an important message of contemplating self-care because we are in this for the long run, the long haul. Uh, as public health professionals and just human beings on this planet, how are you going to connect to your professional and personal mission to make things better for your circumstances, your community circumstances, and everyone around you?